the healing at Capernaum. From Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 28. My beloved brethren and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ. You will remember, brethren and sisters, when we had our last class, that we made mention of the fact that when the Lord had left that synagogue at Nazareth, after people attempted to push him over the brow of the hill, he went down to Capernaum on the sea coast of Galilee, and it was there that we all noted, did we not, that in the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, along with the Acts of the Apostles, all made that a change, a very dramatic change, in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. As he walked into the region of Galilee, with its teeming population, brethren and sisters, a commingling of people from all over the world, the bypass of all nations, and there he was in the midst of all those people, now to preach this wonderful gospel of repentance, among a people that were different in spirit than the Judeans, and among whom he found some response. Not a lot, but he did find some. And you may remember just by way of recapitulation that we spoke about the fact that it was Matthew alone who noted that here was a fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy. The people that sat in darkness, he said, have seen a great light, and to them which sat in the region of the shadow of death, light had sprung up. And we noted the fact, brethren and sisters, that Matthew himself, of course, was of Capernaum. Not only so, but he was one of the chief taxmen there, the chief publican. And he it was that would have presided over that customs house at Capernaum, over the way of the sea. And as we noted that he changed the word walk and walk from Isaiah to the word sat. And later on, of course, Jesus walked into his office and found him sitting at seat of custom and a great light indeed had come by the way of the sea. A remarkable fulfilment of that prophecy and a remarkable light that had come into Matthew's life. Capernaum itself, brethren and sisters, was a thriving metropolis really, although it was only a, a little sea uh, town, some think, think, but nonetheless it was quite a large city on the sea coast in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously it must have been for these reasons. We find that when we search the scriptures that there was a Roman garrison stationed there. A man, a centurion was there with men, men under him to whom he could say go here or go there. That they were stationed at Capernaum. So there was a Roman garrison there. There weren't Roman garrisons in every town. There was one at Capernaum. I wanted you to get a picture of this town because it's a very important town in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it will cross our path many times as we study his life. So get a picture of it. Of all the nine cities around the lake, it probably was the second biggest alongside of Tiberias. This Roman garrison was there. We've already mentioned the custom house which straddled, of course, the way of the sea and collecting all the tolls of the people who came from the east and from the north and from the south as they made their way through the, the passes of, of Galilee to the sea coast of Hypa. There was a synagogue there, brethren and sisters. No ordinary synagogue. This one built by a Roman centurion. The very Roman centurion who had, was over those soldiers built that synagogue as the Jews reminded our Lord when they came on his behalf to seek the healing powers for his servant. So there was a great synagogue there built by that Roman. And the city, of course, itself, Capernaum, means the city of Nahum, the prophet, as some think it was his, his resting place. There's no proof of that. But interpreting the prophet's name again, the city of comfort. And as we learn from Matthew chapter 9 and verse 1, brethren and sisters, 
it became the headquarters of our Lord when he was in Galilee, for we read there, he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And so the Lord settled down here, making it his headquarters, as he found out, particularly over the northern edge of that lake, he did very little at the southern tip of that lake, brethren and sisters, but worked around the northern top of the lake and over to the east, in the land of the Gadarenes and so forth. There our Lord spent most of his time whilst he's in Galilee. Much of our Lord's work was there. Now you think what happened in Capernaum. You think of all the things that took place at Capernaum. We're going to learn tonight how he healed a madman in that synagogue at Capernaum. It was here, brethren and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Christ healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law. It was here at Capernaum that they undid the roof and let down the man with paralysis into our Lord's midst. That was at Capernaum. From Cana of Galilee, the Lord had sent a word of power into Capernaum to heal the nobleman's son. He healed, as I've intimated before, the servant of the Roman centurion. It would appear, although it's not absolutely certain, but it would appear that there were three other miracles performed in Capernaum. Because we read in the records that the Lord was there, and then there's quite a lengthy discourse of what he did, but there's no, no intimation that of any change of geography, and it would appear that in that place also, the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years was healed, which means, of course, that Jairus' daughter was healed there. The ruler of the synagogue, he would have been ruler of that very synagogue made built by that Roman centurion. And there we believe also the man with the withered hand was healed in that synagogue. When you think about that. So a lot of things took place in and around the, the township of Capernaum and particularly around that synagogue. It could tell many stories, brethren and sisters, of events of our Lord's life. It was in that synagogue also that in the 6th chapter of John we read this. In the 6th chapter of John we read at the end of a, a marvellous discourse in that synagogue about the bread of life that we read in verse 59 These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And from that verse we learn, brethren and sisters, that that remarkable discourse the whole of that discourse in John chapter 6 on the bread of life, one of the most wonderful discourses ever delivered by our Lord, was delivered in the synagogue at Capernaum. Now one would have imagined that with all of those things that went on in that synagogue and around that synagogue, that Capernaum would have been, of all the places our Lord visited, a most wonderful, faithful town. What do we read about that? In Luke chapter 10, this is what we read about Capernaum, brethren and sisters. For all that the Lord did there, this is what he had to say about Capernaum. And in the 10th chapter of Luke, we read this. In the 10th, in the 10th chapter of Luke, and at verse 15, the Lord says, And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. And that was the, the end result, really, of his work in Capernaum. All those miracles. All those discourses only to be told that thou, Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven. And obviously, brothers and sisters, as I mentioned it before, the fact that they had a Roman garrison, if they had the great toll house there, it was the great crossroads of the nations. Capernaum was exalted to the heaven. 
But the Lord said it would be thrust down to hell. And for all the things he did there, in the main, they did not respond. There were a few that responded. But in the main, they did not respond. You know what that teaches us, brother and sister? You don't really believe, do you, that all that divine activity in that place and all those wonderful words that God sent them there for nothing. You don't think that God, in his foreknowledge, knowing that, would use our, his son's lot time of his life and his energy in that place for nothing. And that teaches us, brethren and sisters, that God is prepared to go to tremendous lengths for one here or one there or two here or three there. He will go to enormous lengths to extricate people from their circumstances even when all around them is unbelief. It was in that place that our Lord found, of course, Andrew and Peter and, and, and James and John. After he'd met them on the Jordan, he came up here. We're going to see that in a moment. And he called them to be his disciples. There were others in Capernaum that were faithful, who followed our Lord. But in the main, exalted to heaven, thrust down to hell. And you know, brethren and sisters, those words are spoken in a context when the Lord is going to send out the 70 disciples. You read the next verse of Luke chapter 10. He that heareth you, heareth me, and he that despiseth you, despiseth me. And he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. And so it was in the context of our Lord talking to 70 disciples about whom he's about to send among all those villages that he had visited. And he's virtually saying to them, don't waste your time in Bethsaida, Tyre and Sidon and Capernaum. You go out and preach to those people who want to hear you. And if they don't want you, shake the dust off your feet and get on your way. Don't waste your time in these places. That's what the Lord was telling them. And although he had spent much of his time, he was warning those disciples, brethren and sisters, to move on from place to place and only to be positive in their preaching because they could do little else about the negative. They didn't have his power. They didn't have his insight. They never had his answers. Best for them to go from place to place and pick up what they could that was good and positive. They couldn't pick it up and move on. And that included Capernaum. So now we come back to the first chapter of Mark. And it's Mark's record that we've chosen this evening, brethren and sisters, about these incidents which now take place in the next series of our Lord's work in Galilee. Very interesting record, Mark. Brief, but sometimes very much to the point. Now we've seen in that 14th and 15th verse, of course, what we've already looked at, the fact is that he began to preach in Galilee and to preach that the gospel, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Now we know, brethren and sisters, that here comes now an official call for these four, four men, these two sets of brothers. Partners, they are, in the fishing trade. Some records say they were of Bethsaida. Here they are found evidently in the proximity of Capernaum. There's been much controversy about that because most geographers put Capernaum on one side of the northern, the northwestern side of the lake and the other ones put Bethsaida on the northeastern side of the lake. But you know, when you compare the records, it would appear that either there were two Bethsaidas or Bethsaida was a suburb also of Capernaum. It simply means a house of fish. And there could have been two such places named because, of course, the Lake Team with the, 
with fish and around its shores the fishing industry. It would appear to me that Bethsaida, the one mentioned in relation to Peter and Andrew and James and John, was a, a virtually a suburb of Capernaum where they, where they worked as partners in the fishing industry. It's interesting that when Jesus comes upon them now, he had met them before, remember, as John's disciples down the banks of the River Jordan, but on both occasions, when they first met him, when John introduced him, and now again here, brethren and sisters, he is walking. You notice that? That as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, now if you'll come to John's Gospel, you'll remember, that's what we learned when we were back there, in John chapter 1, that's how they first saw him, walking. And this time, it was John and Andrew, not brothers, but partners, John the brother of James and Andrew the brother of Peter, the two of them together. And in John chapter 1, and in verses 35 and 36, we read, Again the next day, after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked. And we made the point there, brethren and sisters, you may remember that here was John standing. He'd come to a standstill. John's work had finished in this respect, that the Son of God had been manifest. Two of the disciples were there, and they were looking, and Jesus was walking. So John was standing, they were looking, and he was walking. And there was a little cameo of the transfer of disciples from John to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now here, in Mark chapter 1, Peter and Andrew look up, and they see him walking by the Sea of Galilee. So that their impressions of our Lord, both first and now, was that he was on the move, brethren and sisters. The Lord was a man of great activity. And when he calls us to his service, we see him walking. We ever see him walking. Whatever he's doing, he's doing something. He's, he's active in the service of his heavenly Father. We rarely ever hear of the Lord resting. And when he did rest, lo and behold, a woman of Samaria comes up. Or 5,000 people come hungry and need feeding. Wherever our Lord sought rest, he never found it. He was always on the move. And Peter and Andrew would have noticed that. They looked up and they saw him walking. Now it's very interesting that these two sets of brothers were doing two different things when he invited them to be fishers. Simon and Andrew here were casting a net into the sea, but they were fishers. But down in verse 19, brethren and sisters, the other set of brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were in their ship mending their nets. And it's very significant that you see these two little groups and they're obviously partners and they've pulled up their boats on the shore and they're back probably from the night's fishing that they fished at night. We learn that from Luke chapter 5. This is daytime obviously. But they're back here now and they're doing the little chores that needed to be done and Peter and Andrew are there with this net that was called a casting net. Different word than the other net that James and John were mending. They were mending a different type of net. Different word in the Greek entirely. The word that's used of, the, of Peter and Andrew's net was a little hand net. A little round hand net that used to spin out into the sea, waited for the purpose that it would then fall over the area they threw it and then they would draw it in on the ropes that they were hanging on to. This little casting net, very cleverly made. And here were these two brothers, and they'd probably obviously either already cleaned their net and had nothing else to do and perhaps were trying their luck in the shallows there where they might catch more fish. Casting this net out and letting it fall in the right place and drawing it in. And you can imagine the Lord watching that as he walked up to them and very carefully how they'd scan those waters 
or any ripples in the water. Or they may even get a sea, the schools of, of fish in the shallows. And they're very deftly and skillfully casting their net out, brethren and sisters, to fall in the right place. And he says, come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. They must have looked at him askance and thought to themselves, well, what would he know about that? Very skillful men at work here. But our Lord, brethren and sisters, are going to teach them how to throw that net. How to throw that net. And my word, doesn't that take some learning? Take some incredible learning to throw a net. And you know, it's a marvellous thing when you think about it, but when you see people come into the truth, how, how different they are and what different skills are needed to bring people into the truth. And you, you can count on one hand, and I believe probably with about four fingers in this case, with, to spare of brethren who are skillful in that regard. Not only skillful, but patient. I learned on the weekend of a brother who had been with an interested friend for 18 months. He introduced me to that interested friend and his mind, that interested friend, as far as I was concerned, his mind was so full of demons and spirits and all sorts of things that I, I would have given up in 18 minutes. He's still going. And the, evidently the chap has shown uh, some considerable interest and, like I said, made remarkable improvement. I'd hate to think what he was like when he started with him. I thought, strike. 18 months he's been working with him. And they say he's, he's, been a, he's been persistent, this brother, and the interested friend has been consistent in his, in his attendance at the meeting, and the interested friend told me about that brother, and he said, you know, he never gives up. And I thought, no, he doesn't. It was quite a remarkable thing, really. And that's not the only instance, brethren and sisters, that we run across of people who know how to throw that net and who know how to do it patiently. You don't always throw it in the right place, and it doesn't always catch fish. But if that's what you do for a living, you... You've got to persist with it. And it's a wonderful attribute, I believe, in people being able to skillfully bring people to a knowledge of the truth. One can stand here all night and, and recount stories of people coming into the truth by the sheer persistence of brethren and sisters with them. Oh, we know that God does the calling. We're well aware of that, brethren and sisters. But of course, it's God's good pleasure to use men and women in his service to do just that calling. And sometimes that takes a long time and skillful time to bring those people to a knowledge of the truth. And as these two men stood there, throwing that net skillfully, the Lord would say, you come after me. You come after me, is the expression. And I will make you fishers of men. You know, that's an interesting comment too, brethren and sisters, because if you come back to Genesis 48, fishers of men, you know, there is such an expression back in the in Genesis 48 when Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were to grow into a multitude into the earth. And we read in the 48th chapter of Genesis in verse 16, the angel, he said, this is Jacob speaking and he's blessing the sons of Joseph. He said, the angel which redeemed me from all evil blessed the lads. And let my name be named on them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And in the margin, if you've got an alternative there against the word grow, you'll notice that it says Hebrew as fishes do increase. And there we have the idea in the seed of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, brethren and sisters, that God would increase them as fishes increase. I will make you fishes of men. 
And the promises to the fathers were to enclose in that marvellous net that God had cast many people as fishes increase. And it's very interesting too to note this, that he's talking to the sons of Joseph. He's blessing the sons of Joseph. And you say, well, so what? So this, that Joseph's name means the increaser. And he's the one, brethren and sisters, that in the record stands as the one who increased the family of God by adoption. And there are many fishes all over the world, swarming over the world, amongst whom that gospel net was cast, that they might become the seed of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to increase as fishes increase. Follow after me, said the Lord, and I will make you fishes of men. Another thing that's interesting about that comment, brethren and sisters, of our Lord Jesus Christ, is that some men's occupations fitted them for their work in the truth. doesn't always happen like that, but some men's occupations did. And you think about them. You take, for example, Psalm 78. This man's occupation certainly fitted him for his task. In Psalm 78, in the last three verses, from verse 70 to the end, we read this. He chose David, also his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Now we wouldn't appreciate, brethren and sisters, in the Australian's uh, way of life that there would necessarily need to be in the herding of sheep and the the, the keeping of sheep, any skillfulness of the hand. It's more like the crack of the whip and the bark of a dog and the boot and the ribs probably. That's about all the Australian understands about looking after sheep. But sheep weren't used in those days just simply as articles for food in that sense. Their wool provided, of course, clothing. Their, their milk, of course, they milked some of the sheep and provided the, the, the milk and, and some other things that they were able to do with that. And so these sheep became almost household pets in a sense. And they were looked after with great tenderness and skillfulness, brethren and sisters. And here David's occupation certainly fitted him for that task, as Peter and Andrews did for his. And I remember always thinking about this, and I remember thinking how that David learned this, and thinking about Psalm 78, how that David, because he was able to lead the sheep, of course God was, was to set him forth as to be the leader of his people of Israel. And I remember Richard the Portovan sitting out there, giving an exhortation one Sunday morning, and I nearly fell off my chair when he pointed out here that Really, the point that Psalm 78 was making was that David was taken from following the ewes. I've never noticed that before, and I thank Richard for pointing that out. From following the ewes. And that's a marvellous thing, brethren and sisters. And I remember the impression that made upon me at the time. I thought, what a remarkable thing that is. But here we are always thinking about the shepherd going ahead. But you see, here was a shepherd so skilful in the way that he trained his sheep but there were times when the ewes were about to have their young and straggling on behind that he could leave the front of the sheep. So trained were they by the skillfulness of his hands that he was able to even to leave them to themselves for the moment and to come up from behind. And that occupation fitted him for the task of bringing all Israel to God, not just those up in front, but those who may be lagging a bit behind as well. And David was able to spend time and go back and get them. Or as Isaiah 40 points out, the great shepherd of the sheep 
who's able even to carry the lambs and to bear the ewes with young and to bring them along with the rest of the flock. Men like that were fitted, brethren and sisters, by their daily occupation for the wonderful tasks of guiding God's people. There are many others like that. You take the Apostle Paul, who was a tent maker. And he it was that often quoted the prophecy of Isaiah in relation to his own work. He saw himself in that prophecy. He saw him that himself as the one that the Lord Jesus Christ would choose that he might take the gospel to all nations. He became the ambassador of Christ as he says in the 2nd Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 5 quoting in the 49th chapter of Isaiah. So he was able to see his own work in that book and time and again in those servant prophecies, brethren and sisters, do we have the extension of God's purpose among the Gentiles likened to stretching out a curtain of a tent. Enlarge thy tent. Stretch out the, the, the rope, says the prophet. You need a bigger tent to incorporate God's children. And three or four times in that prophecy do we have reference to the enlarging of a tent. And lo and behold, along comes a man to do that very work and he is our tent maker. And with him Aquila and Priscilla, for whom he thanks that all the ecclesias of the Gentiles give thanks for their work as their house became an extended tent for all those new people that God brought into the family of Israel. Now that was some of the, just some of the thoughts I thought are worthwhile when you think about these things, that Jesus, that in the providence of God, God saw fit that those men were brought up like that. That when the Lord came with his message of being fishers of men, they knew what he was talking about. Now coming down to verse 17 of Mark chapter 1, Immediately upon this call, brethren and sisters, we read, And Jesus said to them, Come ye after me, and I will make you fishers of men. And verse 18 says, And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. It was an immediate reaction. They forsook their nets. That represented their livelihood. All that this life meant to them, brethren and sisters. There is their total economy. They forsook their nets. But you know something? They didn't really... There is another story to be told a little later about Peter on the lake and the Lord telling him to put his net in a certain place that he might catch some fish. Different one than Peter was talking about on the Sunday morning. This is an earlier miracle. Would appear, brethren and sisters, there's some people say that they, they are comparable records. I don't believe that they are. I don't think they can be. I think they're separate records. And I think although Peter here made a commitment, although he walked away from his nets at that time, I do believe it took another miracle to finally break him with that occupation. And whilst the Lord here was telling him that he would be fishers of men, it took a miracle, brethren and sisters, of the Lord to actually give him a catch to finally break him once and for all from that occupation and to leave all and to, to forsake all and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was all right saying to him, I'll make you fishers of men. And he gets a response. But later on, when he actually gave him a haul of fish, it was then that Peter dragged those fishing, fishes up and from that moment on was turned his back on that great haul of fish and never more did we find Peter fishing until at last, after the resurrection of the Lord, he said, I go a fishing. But it did take another miracle before that finally he made that, made that final break. Now we mentioned in verse 19 that James and John were in the other boat mending their nets. 
Now, you know, brothers and sisters, it's rather interesting that the word mending there means to mend thoroughly, to do it completely. It's, it's a, the idea of the Greek word is something you do very thoroughly. And if you want to get some idea of the import of that word, in the first Corinthians 1 and verse 10, we find it rendered like this in a most interesting context. In the first Corinthians 1 and verse 10, we have that same Greek word here that's used for mending that net. Paul says to the Corinthians in that 10th verse, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that we know divisions, or as the margin says, schism or rents among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And you know, brethren and sisters, that Greek word, mend- word mending is here rendered by three words, perfectly joined together, giving you some idea of the strength of that Greek word, but here it takes three English words to express it. Perfectly joined together. And that was the work, really, to which John in particular was called. And you know, you take the two of the most important brothers of those pairs, Peter and John, and really, when the Lord called them, they were doing certain things which ever after they did. And what was Peter's work? But casting that gospel net, what a throw he made on the day of Pentecost, brothers and sisters. He caught 3,000 fish that day by skillfully putting out that net through Psalm 110 and Psalm 16 and tying the two Psalms together and making him Lord and Christ and bringing those Psalms to a finale. He so beautifully presented his his message that it was a beautiful throw and he caught 3,000 fish. And Peter's work after that was preaching, was it not? He went out as the apostle to the circumcision, trying to catch more fish. But it was John. John, when all the other apostles were gone, obviously younger than the rest, brethren and sisters, obviously younger, obviously eminently suited for his task, it was John who went about mending nets. And it was his epistles, if you read them carefully, that's got a lot to do with perfectly joined together. It's John who speaks about oneness, about unity, about pulling together about being one in the truth. It's John who on the Isle of Patmos, brethren and sisters, was there to receive that remarkable prophecy which pulls the brethren and sisters together today. He saw the great events of the era. He saw AD 70. He saw the end of the Jewish commonwealth. And with the end of the Jewish commonwealth, the blind was pulled down on the work of the other apostles. But it's John still there, brethren and sisters. John, he said, to the seven ecclesias. He was mending nets everywhere trying to plug holes, trying to make them perfectly joined together. And that basically was his work. That's how the Lord found the two, those two great apostles doing those two things. Quite remarkable, really. Now, having called those four men, of course, we come back to Mark chapter 1, and we read that they went from the seashore and they went into Capernaum. And in verse 21, And straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught And the record says they were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. How do or how did the scribes teach? Now that's an interesting exercise, brethren and sisters. If you want to know how the Lord taught, you want to to find out how the scribes taught 
and you'll see what the, what the records say. How many times do we read that? Several times of our Lord's life. When he spoke to the people, they were astonished at his doctrine. Why? Because he's so different. Why was he different? Why was he different? Because they were all so used to the scribes. The scribes, of course, it was mostly the scribes that, did, that spoke on behalf of the Pharisees. They were the expositors of the law. As a matter of fact, a scribe, that's the English rendition, comes from a Greek word in which you find the word grammar. means a writer. The Hebrew equivalent of that is, is the soporib. You've heard about the soporib. That became a, a word for a committee of Jews whose job it was, brethren and sisters, to carefully transcribe the manuscripts one to the other. And the word soporim means similar to the word of the, 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 the grammatists of the scribes of the Greek. It means to write down and also to count. So in the Old Testament, the, 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 the scribes were the soporim. They not only would write things down, but they would count them. In other words, they had numerical values for certain letters. And by totaling up the, the, the value of letters in a given sentence, they were able sometimes to determine the meaning of a letter that may not be always discernible to the eye in, in other respects. And they were able to determine, therefore, with a degree of accuracy, what the original text had. And so they were the sobering, the scribe. They became the writers. But it didn't take them long to go from writing to speaking. If they were going to write the law, and if they were Bible makers, then they became speakers. And so they were the ones who, who set forth the law also verbally. In the New Testament they are known as lawyers, same people. A word meaning pertaining to the law because they were the ones who transcribed the law out. There was gradations among them because some of them are known as the doctors of the law. Not just simply lawyers, but doctors of the law. And that was another echelon above the ordinary lawyer and this time it means an expositor of the law. Not so much that the others weren't expositors, but they were, these were the real good speakers, the doctors of the law, but all of them scribes. And it was them that the people relied upon for their exposition. Now, why was the Lord so different from them? Because how did they go about their work? Well, you see, brethren and sisters, what happened was this. They had the law of Moses. And they became, as I say, custodians of that, way back from the time of Moses. They go way back in history. Jeremiah mentions them. Of course, Ezra was a ready scribe in the law of God. Matter of fact, the reference from Jeremiah, we might like to look at it. It's quite interesting, really. In the 8th chapter of Jeremiah, you might like to look at this, because Jeremiah does mention the scribes here. You see, even back in Jeremiah's day, brethren and sisters, there was corruption among the scribes. So in Jeremiah chapter 8 and verse 7, the prophet says, Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the times of their coming, but my people know not the judgment of Yahweh. How do ye say, we are wise, and the law of Yahweh is with us? Lo, certainly in vain made he it. The pen of the scribes, he says, is in vain. And the margin says, the false pen of the scribes worketh for falsehood. So even in the days of Jeremiah, brethren and sisters, they were corrupting that text. And of course, there were punishments for that. And some of them got caught out. It was a heinous crime to, to tamper with that text. And so it got to a point where, of course, the scribes had to be extremely careful what they did. 
And only those who willfully did it would corrupt that text and woe unto them if they were caught. And so there arose out of the, the law of Moses and the oral traditions, they started to transcribe into writing some of those oral traditions, some of the expositions of that law. And of course, they weren't always good expositions. And the scribes would, would put these in, in, into written form to perpetuate some of those expositions. And some of them were faulty. And because therefore the law of Moses was now getting more and more expansive, so it became highly necessary for a scribe, if he was to add something else, to always make certain that he quoted the premise from whence he got his idea. So if he said, well, Rabbi so-and-so said that, which now we can say means that, he'd always have to quote the premise, which would be the foundation from whence he got his new idea. And so the scribes, brethren and sisters, were people who were always quoting the other rabbis, the chief rabbis. Rabbi so-and-so said this, and Rabbi so-and-so said that. So when we put it together, you can get that. The next scribe would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said that, and Rabbi so-and-so said that, and Rabbi so-and-so said we can make that of it, so we can make this of it. And so it became really a contest as to who knew the most eminent rabbis and what they taught. And so the scribes would get down, therefore, by, by the very, by dint of their, of their own stupidity, they bound themselves to the writings of others. And they never could speak independently. And so when you heard a scribe speak, he could never be pinned down to say something independently. He would always be quoting somebody else. And it became, of course, a practice, and they got so used to it, that the Jews believed that there was no other way to speak. And when a man stood up and said, it has been said of old time, but I say unto you, it nearly floored them. They've never heard that in their lives. They'd never been used to that in their life, brethren and sisters. It was always somebody quoting somebody's self in a half apologetic way, making some refinement of the oral law. But the Lord was direct, certain, and independent. And you see, with a scribe, you can never nail him down. If he got a question that was too difficult, he'd refer it back to the last rabbi. He never gave an opinion of his own. He was never certain, he was never direct, he was never independent. The Lord's form of teaching, brethren and sisters, stamped him as... And when a man stood up and said, It has been said of old time, but I say unto you, it nearly floored them. They've never heard that in their life. They've never been used to that in their life, brethren and sisters. It was always somebody quoting somebody's self in a half apologetic way, making some refinement of the oral law. But the Lord was direct, certain, and independent. And you see, with a scribe, you can never nail him down. If he got a question that was too difficult, he'd refer it back to the last rabbi. He never gave an opinion of his own. He was never certain. He was never direct. He was never independent. The Lord's form of teaching, brethren and sisters, stamped him as a man completely out of, out of the way of their schools. In no way did he conform to that image. And if he quoted anybody, he quoted his God, his heavenly Father. Quoted nobody else. We know what we teach, he said, in the third chapter of John. We 
meaning his father and himself and John the Baptist too, he included in that. We know, but the scribes didn't know. All they knew is what somebody said before about what somebody said before about what somebody said before. And that's all the people ever got, brothers and sisters. And you know, it's pretty poor if we can't find expositors in the truth who can't find something from the Bible to tell us in this day and generation. There's nothing wrong with quoting the, the, the pioneers. God forbid that I should ever speak against that. But you know, brethren and sisters, it would be pretty poor if in our age and generation, 130 odd years on from the our first of our pioneers, if we still had to rely entirely on Dr. Thomas for every, exposit, every exposition that came up here. All right, it would be quite okay. We would be able to say, well, that's sound and it's solid. True, it would be. But I'll tell you what, after 130 years, you'd get pretty tired of someone saying, well, this morning's exhortation is from Elpis Israel, page 36 and 37. And nobody could say a single word that they found out independently, certainly with the help of our pioneers, but found out something else that the word of God has spoken. It would be a pretty poor ecclesia, brethren and sisters, where that happened. And it's God to be thankful. We have got brethren in our meeting and in other meetings also who can expound the word on the basis of the pioneers truly. But at least, brothers and sisters, we can go on and we can build upon that and expound the word of God. You would get sick to death of someone quoting someone else who quoting someone else who quoting somebody else and somebody else. And that was the scribes and Pharisees. And they'd drone on and on, droning on and on, quoting this rabbi and that rabbi. When someone stood up and said, I say unto you, wow. You know what that was, brothers and sisters? That was the voice of personal conviction. The voice of personal conviction. And the voice of personal conviction is very powerful. In Malachi chapter 2, our Lord fulfilled He fulfilled this verse of Scripture Speaking about the work of the priests and the Levites, particularly the Levites, because they were called the teaching priests, we read in the second chapter of Malachi, and in verses 6 and 7, the law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. For the priests' lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of armies. You know, brethren and sisters, if the priests of Israel had followed that precept, there would have never have been such a thing as the oral law. There never would have arisen the various Mishnahs and Talmuds and various other Targums that were written, all of which are various degrees of exposition on various levels of the law, which then got quoted into another section so that there never would have been that if people had have had this principle, the law of certainty, the verse 6, Emeth, not only does duty for the word truth, but certainty, the law of certainty was in his mouth because he kept knowledge and they sought the law in his mouth and he said, thus saith Yahweh of armies. That's the only one we need to quote, brethren and sisters, in the end. In the end, someone's got to quote the Bible, the real Bible. And the people got sick to death of hearing all these quotations from the traditions and the, which were written out of the oral law of the, of, the, of the great rabbis of Israel. Nobody was quoting the Bible. And when our Lord stood up in the end, in that synagogue at Capernaum, 
and spoke like he did, they were absolutely astonished because he was a man with a law of certainty in his mouth and he quoted God's word. And it's been a long time since they've heard something like that. Now in verse 23 of Mark chapter 1, we read a very interesting thing there, brethren and sisters. You can just picture what we're not. In the middle of the Lord's discourse, this great shriek comes out. What have we to do? Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know who thou art. Thou art the Holy One of God. Can you imagine that scene, brethren and sisters? And you know, here is, I believe, the import of this. Here is our Lord in that synagogue of Capernaum. This is going to be the hub of the activity of our Lord in that area. It was built by the Roman centurion. True. But notice what verse 23 says. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now it's very significant, brethren and sisters, that this should happen on the first occasion when the Lord officially opens his campaign in Galilee that that should happen. Walks into the centre, the hub of Jewish activity in their synagogue and in their synagogue there is an unclean spirit. And such is the significance of that, brothers and sisters, that in the comparable record in Luke, Luke says that when the Lord healed him and commanded that unclean spirit to come out of him, he, he tells us what Mark does not tell us. He says the man fell down in the middle of them. He fell in the middle of that synagogue, right in the centre. Why did he do that? Because that man epitomised every spirit in that synagogue. And I believe that's the import of this miracle. The first one recorded by Mark. The first miracle recorded by Mark and here we have a representative of the mad Jewish spirit that was in their synagogue. And you know, brethren and sisters, the more you look at that, the more that becomes, you are convinced of that. Here we have an epitome personalised in that insane man in that synagogue. Now obviously, the man was not insane in the sense that he was always mad. He wouldn't have got in like that if he had been. He was obviously a chap who was great, just disturbed, very, very much emotionally disturbed in his mind. He obviously had moments of, ration, of rationale, but here he is in, when he's listening to this marvellous discourse. I believe the whole of that synagogue, as we learned from verse 22, was absolutely mesmerised by what they heard. They were listening to a brilliant exposition of the word, brethren and sisters. The Lord had them spellbound. And in the midst of that spell, this great shriek in the middle of that synagogue. And it was like a Jewish voice that was to be heard later on in the streets of Jerusalem. And there it was, personalised in that man. And what did he say? First of all, he said this. What have we to do with thee? Rotherham has it. What have we in common with you? And that's exactly right as far as the Jews were concerned, brothers and sisters. They had nothing in common with our Lord. They had nothing in common, common with him. And because, I believe, he represented their point of view, the man calls him Jesus of Nazareth. And that's exactly as they saw our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, in that verse, in what the madman said, brothers and sisters, if you look at it carefully, there's a mixture. There's a mixture of Jewish point of view and a mixture of truth. And I believe that he was representing 
the attitude of Israel at that time, there were hundreds and thousands of them who thronged around our Lord, brethren and sisters. And there were many, many, many among them, like Nicodemus, who thought to themselves, we know he's a teacher come from God because no man could do these miracles except God be with him. Nicodemus believed that. And he wouldn't have been alone. There wouldn't have been many who believed it as intensely as he did, but there would have been hundreds that did. Later on the record, we, we, we know they argued among themselves. There was a division among the people because of him. Some said, he is Messiah. Others said, no, he can't be. Is any, any Messiah come out of Nazareth and so on? But there were many, many people who saw in him, brethren and sisters, something more than humanity, but weren't game to express it, like that poor madman. And in other moments, when he turned upon them and rebuked them for their iniquity and because of their blindness, they thought he was Jesus of Nazareth. The same people who said he was the Son of God. And we have an example of that. We won't turn to it now, but in the 8th chapter of John, brethren and sisters, you know you might know in the 8th chapter of John is a lengthy discourse by our Lord in which he really takes the task, a group of, of people there who thought they were the seed of Abraham, who, who went about to kill him, he said, this not Abraham did. Ye are of your father the Diabolos. If you read back a few verses, you'll read that they were his disciples who believed in him, says John. They believed one minute, did it the next. They were like that madman there. Because they couldn't deny, brethren and sisters, the sight of their eyes or the hearing of their ears. And later on, when this story concludes, you'll see exactly that. They couldn't deny the hearing of their ears or the sight of their eyes. And in the admission of what had happened, they virtually said, we're like that madman. And he represented their point of view. Jesus of Nazareth. Look how mad they were, brethren and sisters, in the 13th chapter of Acts. Talking about the mad spirit in their synagogue. Now think about this. How mad was the spirit in their synagogues? Well, you think about this. You listen to carefully the way that Paul describes the madness in that synagogue. Acts 13 and verse 26. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. Now you think how mad that is. See, what the apostle's saying, brethren and sisters, is this. Not simply this, that they had the law and the prophets and didn't understand that Jesus was the Christ. He's not only saying that. He said that's one form of madness. The other form of madness is this. It goes further than that. That they not only didn't accept him, but in doing what they did to him, they filled up exactly their own studies. They were pouring over the law jot and tittle, all the jot and tittle, pouring over it like this. You can still see them doing it today in Saber. Picking up the jots and tittles, brethren and sisters, every minute particle of the law lifted up their eyes from there and crucified the very one that they were studying of whom the Bible said they would reject. That was the Jewish madness and that man epitomised all that was in that synagogue. There was in their synagogue an unclean spirit. My word there was. And he was the very epitome of all their stupidity. Now this poor mad spirit, first of all, he thought that Jesus of Nazareth had come to destroy them. Why would he think that? Well, brothers and sisters, there was a very strong tradition 
sweeping Israel at that time and had been there for many, many years before it, that when Messiah came, he would devastate Galilee. That was a Jewish tradition. Galilee was, 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 wasn't worth thinking about. You, you, all you could do with Galilee was sweep it up the face of the map. Messiah would do that. And yet the prophecy of Isaiah had spoken that Galilee would be devastated before Messiah came and that he would lift it up. He'd do the very reverse of what they were saying. That this poor region, which has been lightly afflicted in, in, the, in the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, and over whom God's hand had been heavily felt right back in the days of Sisera, that had been feeling the heavy hand of circumstances, would be given some relief by Messiah. But no, they were teaching by their tradition that he would devastate Messiah and uh, Galilee. And this poor fellow thought that he'd come to destroy us. But he said, brethren and sisters, I know who you are. And some of them did too. But they weren't going to express it. Or they didn't, weren't sufficiently convicted of it. But when he said that, I don't doubt in that synagogue. Tell me this, brethren, says, if this is not true, what are they doing thronging him? What, are they, what do they do with hundreds and thousands of them that he can't even eat if somebody can't see in him somebody different? They knew, didn't they? Many of them knew. And when that poor man sang out, there would have been in that synagogue secret hearts which says, yeah, we know who he is too. That man did represent their point of view. Now you look at the second chapter of James. He speaks about these demons, these men that were possessed with the, according to the Greek ideas, with the demons. He says about them, and I believe he has in mind those records when he uses these words. In the second chapter of James, we read this. Verse 18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The demons also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O empty-headed man, as the Greek has it, you madman, that faith without works is dead? And wasn't that the madness that gripped that synagogue and all synagogues, brethren and sisters? People who rejected the doctrine that faith can save and said that law can save but couldn't practice their own law. And even when the, some of them came to the truth, earlier on in the truth, when James' epistle was written and had accepted the doctrine that, that faith is necessary for salvation, didn't practice it. And what is the religion of a madman? The religion of a madman is to know and do nothing about it. And that's exactly what that poor wretch was doing in that synagogue. And he was representing all those around him. He wasn't in a position to do anything about it. He had no control over his own destiny. His mind was demented. But he knew. In his own demented way, he'd worked something out. But Jesus was not prepared, brethren and sisters, to accept the confession of a man in that frame of mind. It wasn't really worth anything. And that's exactly why he was there. He was, he was showing all those people that what they believed, they weren't prepared to practice, and they were as mad, if not madder, than he was. And so there was, in their synagogue, an unclean spirit. Now what did he know about our Lord? Well, he knew he was the Holy One of God. Now that is absolutely incredible. You know why it's incredible? Because you know, brethren and sisters, the only other record of anyone saying that, really, is in Luke's record, and it's not in anybody else, it's the same man, because it's the same record. And the only other occurrence of that expression, the Holy One of God, 
is in the Greek of John chapter 6 and 69, in that synagogue. That's the only occurrence of that expression. The madman of, Ga- of the Gadarenes confessed that Jesus was the Son of God, but he didn't say he was the Holy One of God. And you know, that was a, 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 a unique expression. And when the Lord was born, the angel Gabriel had said to Mary, that Holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And although the angel had said that at his birth, brethren and sisters, not one single person ever said that except a madman. But he'd worked it out in his own demented way, which wasn't worth much, but he'd worked it out. And he, had, he was quoting one of Messiah's wonderful titles. One of the most wonderful titles. And throughout the Old Testament scriptures, especially in Isaiah's prophecy, you have God spoken of as the Holy One of Israel. But you have another one spoken of, brethren and sisters, but not the Holy One of Israel, but one that he calls my Holy One. You have it, for example, in that well-known psalm, which really doesn't need me to turn it up, just to quote it to you. Thou wilt not suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. You have it in Psalm 89 when he spoke about David. He says he has found his Holy One, even David. And he made him the king, the Messiah in Israel, really, in that day as a, as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou wilt not suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. A wonderful title that should have been understood and applied to our Lord and was applied to him by nobody except that poor madman. And yet he was representing a point of view, brethren and sisters, that many were failing to express, though they may have half believed it. But as I've said, also you've got to remember this too. Why did he see him? You might say to yourself, well, how come would that man see him as a holy one? He certainly wouldn't be able to come to grips with that intellectually. But you see, brothers and sisters, a man of that status, you see, you look, you look at him. How did he come to that conviction? Obviously this way. He was convinced that he was possessed with a unclean spirit. If Messiah of Israel was to come in and devastate Galilee as he, this poor wretch, had been led to believe, then that's him. And if he's going to devastate Galilee, then it's because he's holy and he's unclean. There are two spirits in that synagogue. And he would fear that spirit because he saw it as opposite to himself. He knew he was unclean and he thought he was holy. And therefore he felt that he was in the path of some great judgment. I believe that the demented mind would have worked along those lines and yet he expressed nonetheless a truth. He was the Holy One of God. And what was expressed in him which could never have been, brothers and sisters, accepted as an intelligent conviction, yet in others in that synagogue who were listening, there would have been others who would have been wondering in their minds whether he was the Holy One of God. There was in their synagogue an unclean spirit. And when he finally fell down, he fell in the middle of it. There's tremendous significance in that. Now the Lord, of course, tells him to hold his peace. In verse 25, he rebuked him. Hold your peace. Actually, the Greek word means to muzzle. It's exactly the same word that Paul uses when he's quoting the law. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox. And what happened, brethren and sisters? Well, it says when the unclean spirit, verse 26, had torn him. And the word means to gasp. He cried with a loud voice and he came out of him. And so with one unearthly cry, which probably would have chilled the blood of those people in the synagogue, the Lord says, Be muzzled! Ah! Stop! 
couldn't get anything out. Just a piercing cry. And the Lord, he gasped him for breath and felt he was muzzled. The Lord muzzled him. And he fell, says Luke, right in the middle of them. There was in their synagogue an unclean spirit. My word for that. Now, what was the response of the people to all this, brothers and sisters? What was the response of the people? You look at verse 27. They were all amazed, insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commandeth he even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. In other words, in the Greek, in the RSV following that pattern, puts it as two different questions. They're saying, what's this? And what new teaching is this? And you think about that. Had it been that miracle only that impressed them, they would have said, what is this? But they didn't. It wasn't only that that impressed them, brethren and sisters. Two things impressed them. You see, we learned earlier, did we not, back in verse 22, and they were astonished at his doctrine. They were already astonished at that. So when the man fell in the midst of them, and he was healed immediately, everybody knew that, they started a question among themselves, and two things arose in their mind. The things was, we were astonished at his teaching, and now we're astonished at this miracle. What new thing is this? And if they had a thought about it, brothers and sisters, they would have thought the thing through. They would have thought it through. Because you see, the first time they were astonished, they were astonished because he taught them better than the scribes. And if they'd have put the two things together and made them one, they'd have seen the point. What new thing is this? He cast an unclean spirit out of him. What new teaching is this? He can teach better than the scribes. If you equate the two of them, those scribes are mad. They're mad. And I believe Mark deliberately reports those two questions. Because in essence, they were putting them together. What new thing is this? What new teaching is this? Well, he silenced the scribes with that teaching and he silenced that poor unclean spirit with this power. They are the same, brethren and sisters. There was in their synagogue an unclean spirit. And that unclean spirit was in their teachers. And the Lord was going to muzzle them. And you know, in the end, he did. They durst not ask him any more questions. When he revealed them for what they were, spiritual madmen, unclean, demented, with half-hearted convictions, and some of them even about him having half-hearted convictions, and not even able to come to the point of making any sort of confession that would come anywhere near the confession of that poor man who really didn't know much about what he was saying, but he said the right things anyway. And when he spoke, he spoke for them all. He saw what they thought he was, Jesus of Nazareth, but he worked out in his mind that that same Jesus that God had made his holy one. He at least saw that. And they should have seen that, brothers and sisters, because they had better minds. Never let us be said of us that there's an unclean spirit in this place. Let us always be alert, brethren and sisters, as to the spiritual import of that book. 
that we may be able to rightly discern the word of truth. And when we set it before people, to be certain of what we're saying, because we do believe him to be the Holy One of God. And if that spirit prevails here, brothers and sisters, then we will go to the kingdom together intelligently, knowing what we believe and practicing what we believe.